This is Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission? To probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. Continuing on this year's theme of labor in archaeology, on November 2, 2018, archaeologist Catherine Cameron of the University of Colorado Boulder met with a panel of Siam students for a discussion on the topic of slavery and captive labor in small-scale societies. It's time to think things over. Stay tuned for Radio Siam. Hi, I'm Dana Bardall, the Hirsch Postdoctoral Associate in the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. We are gathered here for a podcast discussion on November 2nd, 2018. Our guest today is Catherine Cameron, who is Professor of Anthropology at the University of Colorado Boulder and a leading scholar of the archaeology of the American Southwest, with a particular focus on the Chaco phenomenon and a long-standing interest in prehistoric population dynamics, processes of abandoned migration, and more recently, captive taking and captive labor, particularly in small-scale societies. Our discussion today will focus on three of her recent publications. The first is an article from American Anthropologist, which she published in 2013, titled How People Moved Among Ancient Societies, Broadening the View. The second paper is a chapter in a 2015 volume, The Archaeology of Slavery, A Comparative Approach to Captivity and Coercion, edited by Lydia Wilson Marshall. Cameron's chapter in that volume is titled Commodities or Gifts, Captive Slaves in Small-Scale Societies. And the third piece we will be discussing is from a special issue of the Archaeological Papers of the American Anthropological Association, published in 2016, titled The Variability of the Human Experience, Marginal People, and the Creation of Power. We're going to be asking Catherine some questions related to her body of work represented across these three articles. Welcome, Catherine. So I'll start us off with a very basic question. How did you get into this work, and what challenges does it represent for you as an archaeologist? Um, well, thanks for having me, and I want to apologize <clears throat> to start out for my voice. I'm just getting over a cold. Um, I got into the study of captive taking um, through a couple of interests. Um, I uh, was in a sort of mom and pop, very small museum in Yuma, Arizona years ago, and I saw a picture of a captive woman that I now know to be um, Olive Oatman. She was a a young girl um, pioneer family who was captured by the Mojave and lived with them for a number of years. And um, she she was tattooed on her face. She was very distinctive and gave lots of talks afterwards. And I was thinking that, my gosh, women who were captured must have brought lots of interesting things with them, lots of interesting ideas and um, new ways of doing that might have been aspects of how culture, cultural practices are transmitted. Um, and I, I had thought for years that we really don't have good models for how you know, design styles, pottery styles, and so on are transmitted from group to group. Um, and here was one I thought would be a useful one to pursue. And then the other um, portion of my background in captives is that my great aunt was a, um, a Presbyterian missionary in San Francisco at the beginning of the 1900s, and she rescued Chinese slave girls. And when I was a little kid, she was just an ancient little old lady, but she lived next to a woman, Chinese woman, who was another, to me, was just another aunt. But 
That woman had been sold by her father. She can remember she was five years old. She was in China. She'd been sold by her father. She can remember her father taking the money, her mother crying, and then being put on a boat and taken to America to be a domestic slave for a family in Chinatown in San Francisco. So I'd known about those sorts of things all my life, um, sort of put them together in my mind and uh, started off on this on this study, which has been yeah, really interesting, interesting uh, travel. Hi, my name is Dusty Bridges. I'm a first year anthropology PhD student. I study the incorporation of refugees and other communities into Haudenosaunee territory in the 17th and 18th century. Um, and so my question revolves around this uh, kind of boundary, or sometimes arbitrary boundary, of the European colonialism. Uh, so your, in your examination of societies across the Americas, the practice of taking captives seems to transverse or traverse that boundary. Um, have you found that there are different processes or practices that occur during, in the context of European disruptions and colonialism? Yeah, processes in terms of um, how the, the captives are incorporated or... Um, in terms of motivations, in terms of how they're incorporated into a society, mm -hmm. um, along those lines. Yeah, well, certainly in terms of how they're incorporated, there's a sort of a... I, I look at it as a continuum um, because... And, and some people, some captives can experience the full range of that continuum. Some some captives are uh, taken in and they become wives and uh, or are adopted. They become members of the society. But as I said yesterday, that you know, the, for small scale societies, the the real um, way that you're accepted into a small scale society is by becoming a, a member of the kin group because that is the only thing that holds the group together is there is a kin relationship. So if you're outside the kin group, you really aren't even human. So some some groups would accept the um, the captive as a, a wife or a, an adopted member, especially children are easy to adopt and they'll, they'll lose their language very quickly and they'll become a member of the society very fast. Um, but in other cases, they are kept in very marginal positions. They were kept as slaves. We talked a lot about the Northwest Coast yesterday, where you had no option of joining the kin group um, of that society. You were, you were kept as, a, as an abject slave. And that was true <clears throat> some places. I mean, it was that's the continuum. But there are, um, for example, the Comanche would keep some of their captives as, um, as slaves, but others would become adopted. I mean, some became very prominent members of the group. Uh, Kwana Parker is, is one good example. Um, but becoming becoming a member of the group, there wasn't really any ceremony. Somebody just sitting next to you around the campfire said, you're my brother. And then you were part. You were a member of the, of the group. Um, your origins were not forgotten. I mean, people didn't forget that you came from somewhere else or that you were somewhere else, someone else. But uh, you were... You were a member of that group then, with with most of the the um, benefits of that status. So, I don't know if that answered your your whole question. Did you have another part to it, or um, just in how? Um, so I'm thinking of the morning wars of uh, Iroquois society, um, where they would take captives uh, to kind of fill in the gaps of the community mm -hmm. um, through from losses of disease and warfare. So I'm thinking in that instance, captive taking was really um, kind of a, 
almost a result of some sorts of mm -hmm. European disruptions. And, um, so uh, do you find similar instances where the, the practice of taking captives has changed? Um, oh, with, with European disruption? Yeah. Um, yeah, um, it, it was dramatically increased, the, the amount of warfare. I mean, Europeans sometimes actually tried to get wars going because it was to their benefit. <clears throat> and <clears throat> with with more warfare, you also had, <clears throat> excuse me, you had, you had more captive taking and, and so on, you know, more deaths. So, yes, there's a, I, I think you can say pretty much wherever Europeans showed up, there was, you know, more disruption. Um, and more captive taking. Um, and then uh, in terms of how they were incorporated or not, uh, I think that, yeah, with, a, with, a, with European um, intrusion, there probably were more, uh, there was more selling of captives um, because there was a market for them. You know, the, um, there was, at least in the U.S., there was a, a big market for captives, and so you could sell them. And so, you know, you have these people, you sell them widely. Um, yeah, it benefits the, the group that took them. So. Hi, my name is Selfie Bokirian, and I'm a second year master's student in archaeology. Um, and my question was you mentioned briefly in your article, and also just a moment ago, that there are people in recent history and also now who live under conditions of captivity and slavery. Do you think that understanding the captive experience in prehistory can benefit us in any way in addressing the current situation that involves captives and slaves? That's a wonderful question. I mean, I would certainly hope it would. Um, I, you, you know, you just don't even want to look at the internet for those kinds of questions because there are just some awful things there. There are something like, um, Oh gosh, there's different estimates, but something like 38 million people essentially enslaved these days. Many of them are young girls in sex slavery. <clears throat> and um, I, yeah, I've bumped into people who write in that field, <clears throat> excuse me, um, who write in that field and have just tell horrific stories. And you would think, I, you know, we're getting into human nature here. <laughs> I don't know how much I can say about human nature, but you'd think that people, who looked at the captive experience could sympathize, could imagine that what those young girls are going through, could imagine how awful it is. Um, I'm not sure that that's true. Um, I had an occasion while I went to, to Las Vegas for um, a conference a couple of years ago. And, you know, Las Vegas is a city where, you know, you look up these big buildings and they're probably full of young girls who are being trafficked. Um, and everyone's having a good time. So yeah, uh, I think yeah. Uh, here's what here's one thing I will say about human nature. I mean, <clears throat> I think I said this yesterday too. That um, 200 years ago, um, something like three quarters of the world's population were slave serfs or indentured servants. Now it's a tiny proportion. 38 million sounds horrible, but it's a tiny proportion of our almost eight billion people in in the world. So I would say yes, things are getting better. Yes. At least a large proportion of us have learned to sympathize with other people. Um, so yes, I hope that you know some of the work I do would have that effect. Um, yeah, no, great question. Thank you.
I'm uh, Chris Juarez. I'm a second year MA student and I studied the iconography of coastal Peruvian and Andean ceramics and my thesis is on Nazca polychromeware and its spread. Um, I was really interested in this concept of the mourning wars of the Iroquois, um, wherein the purpose of captives is revenge or replacement of a community member rather than economic or social benefit of some kind. And it kind of, to me, bore some similarity to the flowery wars of the Aztec Empire, in which uh, captives were taken for the sole purpose of sacrifice um, and not necessarily for some sort of um, economic or social function, but just for this function of sacrifice. And I was just curious if this is something that you often see in small scale societies, because obviously the Aztec Empire is not a small scale society. Um, or only large, and is it limited to tropical America where you've seen it, or in other places? Um, I think sacrifice is not uncommon, mm -hmm. um, it, but people are, are in small-scale societies, people are valuable. The, the larger scale you get, the more people you have, and, you know, you've got lots of them, you can afford to, you know, get rid of some of them. But sacrifice, I think, happened in a lot of different societies, and it, and it happened in different ways. Um, thinking of a group uh, that lived on the um, the east coast of South America, and when someone a prominent died, they would um, have death companions, and so a, a a little captive girl or an orphan girl would be put in with the, with this dead person and buried alive, essentially, as a death companion. Um, we'll, you'll go with this with this um, very prominent person and help them in the afterlife. So those kinds of things happened, but it wasn't the large-scale Aztec uh, sacrifice uh, in most cases. Although in Africa, again, probably close to state-level societies, there sometimes were um, more large-scale you know, sacrifices. Um, but the, uh, for small-scale societies, more people is what you wanted, and that's what gave you power. It wasn't, you weren't trying to um, gain land, you weren't necessarily, you know, goods were Goods were good, you know, it was good to have have lots of things, but really your goal was to have more people that you controlled. And so by taking pe more people, your, your um, you know, your society grew in size. And of course, with the morning wars, um, your Hawaiian people were dying fast, right? And so um, they, you know, they needed to fill the families up again. So yes, taking captives was something you did to, you know, bring more people in. So my idea about sacrifice is that it would only happen when you had a lot of people and enough people that you could afford to lose a few. Hi, I'm uh, Sam Bissettel. I'm a first year master's student in archaeology and I'm studying faunal remains uh, from uh, contact period uh, Haudenosaunee sites. Um, and my question, uh, you mentioned in several articles and in your talk that uh, the majority of captives were women and children, and that uh, males were considered too dangerous to be taken. They might fight back or something like that. They'd, um, so when young boys were taken um, in societies that, like the Northwest Coast, where they wouldn't be integrated into society, how were they dealt with when they grew up to warrior age? Well, I think, you know, and, that, and that's, that's it's a hard question. It's a good question, but it's a hard one because you, you can't see all those steps in between. But from, I think I said yesterday that um, 
slaves agreed with their status. I mean, they, they lived in societies where slavery was uh, the way life was, and they didn't fight it. Um, so a young boy would grow up as a slave, and he would just uh, accept that that was his status. I, it, it's hard for us to imagine uh, that people wouldn't be fighting back, but I, I, that's the, you know, the current argument about why slaves didn't rebel more often, why uh, you know, these young boys didn't grow up and kill their masters and run off. Um, and as um, I think I said also yesterday, um, there is a horrible stigma uh, to slavery. I mean, you see it all over the world. Um, if you've been a slave, you know, that sticks with you and it sticks with your family. Um, so you you couldn't say, I'm going to kill my master and run back home because they wouldn't take you. You've been a slave. And apparently there was some, you had some little bit of time before that happened, like maybe a year. So when a very prominent person was captured, if their family could buy them back again for a year, they could go back to their normal life. But after that, they, it was just over for you. And so apparently people sort of just accepted that, um, and it was a status that they they lived with. Um, as hard as that is for us to imagine, you know. Um, but it was true. I mean, as I was saying, you know, uh, the number of slave revolts that around the world, there were so few of them. Why didn't more people rebel in the South? Why didn't more people in Rome or, or Greece rebel? And they just didn't very often. So, but young boys, um, sort of um, universally, they, if, if they were taken in as young kids, they were enculturated into the culture of their captor, and then they, you know, they were basically just doing the hard work, um, and you know, they were sent off to make canoes and to, um, you know, collect firewood and just do all the tough stuff, paddle a canoe and so on. So that was their role. Hi, Dana Bardolf again. Um, so throughout your articles, Dr. Cameron, you stress that ethno-historic accounts must be used cautiously as direct models for prehistoric captive taking and exchange. As ethno-historic accounts were written primarily by your American men, are there potential biases that hinder our ability to reconstruct the lives of captive women and children who may have been overlooked or completely absent from these narratives? I think, yeah, that's a, a huge problem. Uh, for example, I, I talked a lot about <clears throat> Leland Donald's study of the Northwest Coast, and he uses for captives, he uses the word he all the way through. He does say some somewhere along the line, he does say most of them were women and children, but he doesn't emphasize that at all. There's, I don't, I think if you look in his index, I don't even think he has gender. I think maybe he has women, but I don't know. So yes, it's a it's a big problem. Um, and you kind of have to read between the lines. And especially when you look at labor, that's interesting because labor is so gendered and, you know, you'll have this surprising, you know, there's this person who was wrongly gendered doing the work that a man or a woman should have done. And, and you can sort of see it, see the, um, the, the gender there, but it is, it is pretty difficult. Hi, this is Dusty again. Um, so in your articles, uh, when you're discussing discussing push and pull models of migration, um, you distinguish between forced and voluntary forms, um, forced being often captive taking. Um, and certainly there are cases where it is one, in the, one or the other, but sometimes I think it can be somewhere in the middle. 
I'm thinking of the Wendat diaspora after their defeat by the Haudenosaunee um, in the 17th century, when some uh, moved, chose to move west further into the Great Lakes, um, where others were incorporated into Haudenosaunee towns. So it was kind of a, there was an option there to be incorporated into your, your, your captors, I guess, or you could also move elsewhere. Um, so I'm wondering, um, for comparative reasons, are there other cases where maybe captives did have some kind of a choice or, or where those boundaries between forced and voluntary is, is blurred? Oh, I think very blurred. And I think, um, I, you know, I'm Southwestern archaeologist and we talk about uh, abandonment a lot. We actually talk about depopulation now, <clears throat> but we talk about that process a lot. And yes, there you know, there's there are all sorts of reasons why you might go one place or another. Uh, what I, you know, with that article, what I wanted to bring out was just that we think, uh, in when we study migration, we think that people always have choices, of course, and they spend a lot of time thinking carefully about where they're going to go, and uh, the, also the idea that people are going to take you in because then there's some sort of recipro reciprocal relationship, you know, We'll take you in now, and then you'll take us in later. Um, and I think that that is too simplistic a model. I think that when, um, for example, I you know Four Corners abandonment, which I, I I showed you where the Four Corners was yesterday, and um, people move from the Four Corners area down to the Rio Grande because it's a couple hundred miles. Uh, at 1300, and the whole Four Corners was abandoned. And people say, oh, well, they moved to the Rio Grande where they had connections. You know, they knew people down there. They had been married in, and those people would, of course, take them in and allow them to live, uh, you know, in this new place comfortably, give them land. And I'm thinking, what, you know, what, what are those people going to get in return? The Four Corners has been abandoned. They can't, you know, when their hard times come, they can't say, okay, well, now it takes up the Four Corners. That place is abandoned. It's gone. Uh, so uh, I, 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 my goal in that article was basically just to point out that it's not as simple. I mean, I think if you have options, you maximize every option you have. For example, the Yanomamo, um, they, you know, they're, their villages get to the size of about 500 people, and then they split. And it's usually some uh, really difficult situation where a murder happens or something, and a bunch of people just have to go. And they oftentimes go to another village and they say, please take us in. You know, the, our enemies are behind us. Take us in. We need food. We need to, you know, get ourselves together. <clears throat> but they don't stay long in those intermediate places because... Um, the people don't really want them, and eventually they start being annoyed by them, and they start saying, you know, you're, you know, trying to take our women, or you're doing this, or you're doing that. So, um, so they try and reestablish themselves independently somewhere as soon as they can. But it sounds like for your the case that you're talking about for the Haudenosaunee, um, they they did have some options. They could go with one group, or they could go with the other group. Or they could possibly establish a, an independent settlement uh, of their own. So, so surely the leaders were thinking really fast on their feet. What what's the best option? Um, and I think that's that's true. You know, you're pulled over here because someone's inviting you in. You're pushed out of the area you're in because there are people on your on your trail that are going to attack you. Um, so you're you're putting all that together and deciding where you want to end up.
Hi, uh, it's Salty again. Uh, my question is, uh, you mentioned in your articles that the main lines of evidence you're using are ethnographic analogies and uh, also that skeletal evidence is a primary line of evidence. Mm -hmm. How do we look for captives in the archaeological record when we don't have either of those? Really, really good question. Um, I, it, it's it's tough um, that you know your. I think I said iconography is a good one. The the first thing you look for is evidence of warfare because I think if you have warfare, the chances that you aren't taking captives is slim. I mean, if, if almost everyone does. You know they they um, you know attack a group and they will. You know women are valuable objects. They will take the women. And rather than just leave them, sometimes they kill them, but you know, rather than just leave them, you would take them. So <clears throat> I think evidence of warfare should start us looking for those uh, sorts of things. And then, um, you know, I think I mentioned oral tradition, I mentioned uh, iconography are, are useful <clears throat> ways of seeing, um, seeing captives, seeing or seeing the, the act of captive taking. Um, uh, Bruce Trigger, the archaeologist Bruce Trigger, who worked up in this area, <clears throat> argued that uh, when you saw uh, ceramic styles being, you know, uh, moved from place to place, he argued that that was captive women, and I thought that was really interesting in his um, Children of the, I don't even know how to pronounce the, the word, um, his, his uh, ethnography of uh, the Hurons. You know, he talked about you know the movement of, of ceramic styles, and you know he knew that lots of women were being moved around, and he attributed it to that. So I think, you know, I think we're just at the beginning of trying to figure out what kind of archaeological evidence are are useful. <clears throat> I also mentioned yesterday DNA, and DNA is transforming what we know. I mean, here in the U.S. Uh, with our NAGPRA laws, we don't look at human remains much anymore. So I'm not sure it's ever going to transform the U.S., but in Europe, it's just completely revolutionizing what they can say because they can see people moving around. They can see these big groups moving around. Uh, so that's something we can start with DNA, and then you have to, <clears throat> of course, layer on these other lines of evidence. Um, but that, of course, DNA requires human remains, so uh, doesn't completely <laughs> doesn't completely answer your question there. Um, Chris Suarez, uh, similar to Dr. Bardal's question, actually um, about ethnographic sources and bringing in Mesoamerica again. Sorry, <laughs> um, I was just curious: how do archaeologists and migration scholars use or interpret ethnographic, oral, or written histories of migration when they're very interwoven with myth, um, as many ancient Mesoamerican histories are in a way that's not necessarily um, that you're able to separate the myth and the history. How do you deal with that when reconstructing migration histories? Yeah, and that, that's a, another great question. Uh, there, obviously, we all create stories about what happened. Uh, even on a small scale, you know, we all have stories about our, ourselves that are 
you know, pretty true, but we, we jog it for whatever, whatever our audience is. And of course, with oral traditions that go down to, you know, sometimes centuries, um, you can't assume that everything is going to stay. Um, but there are ways, and uh, this is something that I yeah, need to look into more carefully, but there are ways of figuring out what parts of the oral tradition uh, do tend to stay true to the original. Uh, there's a guy named Bansina who's worked in Africa, um, who has looked at, at those kinds of ideas. Uh, some of, for, for North America, uh, Roger Echohawk, who's a Pawnee uh, scholar, he argues that in every, um, almost every North American tribe, or maybe he was just talking about the plains, um, you find a story of an origin from a cold northern place. Well, that's Beringia. Um, the cold northern place has, has, you know, big, big, big animals. Well, those, that's megafauna. So some of the stuff, some of the basics uh, can stay in oral tradition for a very long time. And it's just a matter of sort of sorting out uh, the, the, the points that are, you know, that are most interesting. There's another oral tradition um, in the Southwest among the Hoakam. <clears throat> and it's, um, we know that Hoakam became much more complex just before their, their populations crashed. And there were people living on platform mounts. And the oral traditions say that people got a lot of power and the common people fought them and won. And the powerful people went away. So that were, that fits with the archaeology. Um, so yeah, I mean, kind of putting archaeology together with the oral traditions is another another point that we could make that work. But it's a good question, and it is it is definitely problematic. Um, but oral traditions can be pretty powerful things. Um, I'm also working. This is in the the migration article uh, with. An account, um, it's, a, it's a Navajo account of Chaco Canyon, and it's, it's about a great gambler who came into Chaco and uh, started, you know, trying to get people to gamble, and everybody that gambled with him lost. And first they lost all their belongings, then they lost their homes, then they lost their wives, then they lost themselves. Um, and so... The great gambler was then all powerful over everyone. He'd taken everything, and the the people ended up being slaves. And so the gods sent down uh, their son to save the the people of Chaco. And um, the great gambler was started gambling with this son of the gods, and <clears throat> eventually lost. And they put him on a giant arrow and shot him down to the south, uh, where apparently ended up somewhere down there. Uh, but at any rate, he was no longer in Chaco, and so the people of Chaco were saved. But because of that experience, um, they never wanted a powerful person again. Uh, he made, made them work. The argument is that he made them build the great houses, but they never wanted that experience of having someone powerful over them. Again, that fits right in with the archaeology. Chaco was a one-time event. It was a place of lots of power, and then that power was gone. So... Hi, Sam again. Um, so you mentioned that uh, the captives tend to show 
um, more signs of trauma, like um, nasal fractures and, and things of that like. Um, are there other skeletal markers of poor health that are common, maybe um, osteoporosis or carpal tunnel from uh, significant manual labor or just malnutrition? There are, and that's um, the work of Deborah Martin has done a lot on that, and uh, and some of her students, uh, Ventura Perez is uh, one of her students. <clears throat> yes, they do. They're malnourished. They are um, oftentimes um, they oftentimes have evidence of very very hard labor, and you can see that on their bones that they were um, you know carrying heavy loads, which affects your neck. Uh, just yeah, all kinds of, of heavy labor, and I'm not you know I'm not a bioarchaeologist, so I don't know you know I don't know as well uh, the details as someone like Deborah Martin or uh, or you know your professor here, but um, but yeah, I think I think they were were poorly treated, uh, and then to get back to the effects of colonialism after you know after Europeans arrived, many Native Americans suffered from malnutrition and overwork. As a result of um, you know just being sort of enslaved by the Europeans too. Dana Bardolph again. So in the course of documenting trauma, like what Sam's brought up, and some of the really horrific experiences of captives living in the past, what are some of the responses of descendant stakeholder communities to these narratives of captive taking and violence, either to your work or to other scholars that have documented this? Very, very good question, and um, I have not had Native Americans respond yet. Um, I, I suspect it's coming, and for most of the time that I've been doing this, I stayed away from the Southwest where I work, uh, did not talk about it, and I am now, so um, I don't know. Uh, we, for example, for the Southwest, we tend to see Southwestern people as being peaceful, uh, non-warlike, not you know, um, and and keeping slaves is is something that is today we just find horrifying. Can't imagine that it happened. And um, I I was mentioning for the Northwest Coast, many people hated Leland Donald's book, thought it was just wrong because of course you know these weren't really slaves. They couldn't really have been slaves. These are you know Northwest Coast. Uh, indigenous neighbors. They couldn't have kept slaves. So I think, yeah, I, for the Northwest Coast people, I don't know, I haven't heard anything about what the indigenous people on the Northwest Coast think about that, just the, the um, Anglo scholars. So if, if your oral traditions are telling you that you had slaves and that you took captives and that you were warlike, like, um, maybe you wouldn't uh, say this is wrong, but yeah, I don't know. I guess I just haven't experienced that. So, um, so, but an interesting, you know, interesting topic. And I, I, I may one of these days um, encounter some resistance to it um, because I think it's a, it's a, it's a tricky topic. It's one that, you know, just like with in the Southwest, we had the discussion of cannibalism. That's a horrible topic. And, People were not interested in hearing about that at all. Um, this is not quite as horrifying, but still, it's not it's not something you want to think about. So, yeah, I guess we'll see. Hi, this is Dusty again, and my question actually follows up on Dana's. 
Um, so yesterday in your talk, you mentioned that communities in the Northwest Coast will sometimes uh, mention that someone's ancestor was a captive. Mm -hmm. um, so that lead me, led me to wonder about uh, descendants of these captives in contemporary communities and whether perhaps um, following up from ethno-historic accounts that maybe contemporary ethnographies of, of captive descendants in communities might lend more um, further insights into how captives worked within communities because their their descendants might actually be within communities today. And yes, and that is is definitely true. Um, I have a friend that uh, Brenda Bowser who works in the um, Amazonian part of Ecuador, and she is um, a uh, she's an archaeologist, but she you know she lived in these in these villages and you know people whisper about you know that, that those women over there they were captured you know and this is you know it's been 40 years or 50 years but they're still they their origin isn't forgotten um, or their mother's origin in many cases it's their daughters of um, so that happens um, James Brooks who's at the University of California Santa Barbara sort of got into his study of, of captives by interviewing uh, someone in the San Luis Valley of uh, Colorado and the, it was a couple and you know I think I can't remember what I think it was the, uh, the the husband walked out of the room and the wife said you know his family they were they were captured they're, you know, he's, not, he's not really Hispanic he's Indian and he said, you know his mother grandmother whatever it was was a slave <clears throat> captured slave so um these, you know, these oral traditions do keep going on through the generations. And I think, yeah, a project where you went out and interviewed people and asked those kinds of questions would be would be really, really interesting. Um, you know, again, people forget and, you know, through generations, they change things. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, you'd have to take all that into account. Uh, but I think that that sort of memory ethnography would, would be would be helpful. And, uh, and people, you know, like I say, people do do that. Um, Leo and Donald actually did use some memory of that. Talking to modern people about their memories of what their their parents or grandparents had told them. So. Hi, uh, Selfie again. Uh, you mentioned in your article that the groups who typically survive being captured and become slaves or become integrated tend to be women and children. Mm -hmm. Do you think approaching captives through the lens of an archaeology of children or feminist archaeology would be productive in further exploring their lives and experiences? Oh, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> for sure. Uh, I think, yeah, that's, you know, Something where you, you know, there's so much going on in gender studies. Um, there's and 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 studies of childhood. I I think Dana mentioned that I was for a long time the editor of the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory, and we were getting lots of that kind of work, um, especially children recently. Lots of studies of children, and um, again, you know, to identify the the presence of children, you often have to find the bodies of children, but uh, there, there are other ways. I mean, people are, are seeing children, beginning to try and see children in other ways. Um, but, but using some of the theory behind um, the 
the presence of children and women, I think would be would be quite useful. Um, and just to uh, the Southwest is, you know, I mean, there have been there has been work on gender. There was just a paper that came out on gender in Chaco Canyon, but so little. I mean, and we have ethnographic models right there. There, there are people, you know, indigenous people that still live there that we could use as models. That why people don't go there. I mean, it's not easy. It's not easy to see the work of, of um, you know, gendered work in the past. Uh, but you know, still, we should do that more. And I think I think you're absolutely right. Taking some of the theory from from those kinds of studies and applying it to to the study of captives would be a really good idea. So I haven't done that yet, but <laughs> but I think it it should be done. It should definitely be done. Uh, Chris, again, um, I am interested in uh, religious pilgrimages on in smaller scale societies, um, and I know that you mentioned in one of the readings that pilgrimages are one of these types of migrations that kind of fall to the wayside a little bit in terms of scholarship. There's not as much um, on these different types of migration, and I was just interested as well in the archaeological evidence, the material evidence of um, pilgrimages in particular, which is often the exchange or distribution of objects of some kind. Um, and I was curious if you had done any research or knew anything about material evidence for captives within the context of pilgrimage? I haven't, but pilgrimage is a big topic for Chaco Canyon. Uh, some people have argued that it is a, a, a ritual pilgrimage center. So um, that that work has been done um, partly because at this ritual center, you know, you tend to bring things. You bring, you know, I call it tribute, but you bring things to, to give to the people in power there or to the spirits that you believe are there. And so Chaco has been argued to be one of those kinds of centers because you find things coming into Chaco, but you don't know what goes out. Uh, so that's a big argument. Some people see Chaco as a center, a major center of power, where um, it's collecting tribute from other people, not as a ritual center, but it's a it's a powerful state, really powerful polity. Uh, but the <clears throat> but the pilgrimage model is takes that a step down and said well, it's not that powerful. It's just sort of this ritual center where people <clears throat> went and gave goods and um, you know tried to placate the gods that they felt there. Um, now, in terms of, uh, you know, I, I argued yesterday that there are captives in Chaco. <clears throat> in terms of how they would fit into one or the other of those models, um, they don't fit in well to a pilgrimage model because that is a much more benign sort of way of seeing Chaco. Uh, when you see Chaco as a very powerful place, it's going out and dragging women in and other goods, presumably. Uh, when you see Chaco as a ritual center, not so much. I mean, it's... It's something where um, people are coming in voluntarily. They're building these great houses voluntarily, uh, and so it's a it's a different sort of process entirely. But pilgrimage is an interesting thing, and it um, the other thing that we've wondered about with pilgrimages um, is that typically, well, I don't know typically, but oftentimes when you leave a um, you know you, you make a pilgrimage to a certain site and you come home with something some part of it. We don't see that with Chaco either. You know, what takes something home that, that 
that is a memento of your trip that you can show to your neighbors, you know, I did the pilgrimage to Mecca or whatever. Um, but we don't see that with Chaco. And of course, it could have been something that's completely perishable. Hi, Sam again. Um, I have a sort of general question about the study of migration and movement. Um, in your 2013 article, you mentioned that there's um, that archaeologists don't tend to consider economic use of a territory to be a form of migration. Mm-hmm. Um, so this led me to think, is there a more like standardized definition of migration, or is this subjective and variable based on who's studying it? Oh, yes. <laughs> very variable based on who's studying it. So there's all kinds of, um, of variability in, in the definition of migration. Um, and that's why in that article I spent some time saying, <clears throat> I'm not going to try and redefine it here. I'm just going to, to you know, talk about how people move. Um, because some people would say, yeah, you know, you have hunter-gatherers who move around a fairly large territory. Well, is that migration? Well, not really. Um, you have, well, I mean, it is. It's people moving, um, but people move across the living room, and it's not, you know, you can call it migration. But then you have people moving permanently from one place to another. Here's my home now, and now I've permanently moved to this other home. I think many of us would agree that's migration, but how far do you have to go to make it migration? Um uh, or if you're moving within the United States, is that a migration if you go from, you know, one part of New York to the other part of New York? If you move across the city, if you move across the state, if you move across the country, you know, where do you draw the line in terms of what you call migration? Do you have to move across, you know, national boundaries? <clears throat> so there's all kinds of m- m- migration, different ways of defining migration. And some people for the, you know, the... I'm talking about the movement, movement of captives, we call them refugees, um, or you know something else entirely, not migrants. Uh, so yeah, there's a there's just this wide range, and I don't I don't think we'll ever settle on something that's really that we really agree on is a, is a term that that fits all all cases. Uh, but it is something that people have written volumes about, uh, so that we can consider it. Wonderful. Well, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much to our podcast participants. Thank you very much to Dr. Cameron, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Radio Siam, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. You can find all AAA-sponsored podcasts at AmericanAnthro.org on the Stay Informed page. You can also subscribe to Radio Siams on all major podcast streaming services, and our next podcast will be announced soon on siams.cornell.edu. Thanks for listening.